Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 169, Athanasius's On the Nicene Council, Part 1. I'm on a history kick. For at least the next several episodes of the Trinity's podcast, we're going to resume our series on the many councils of Catholic bishops which convened in the wake of the council at Nicaea in 325. While most now look on this as an epic starting precedent, at the time it was in a sense treated like other less universal synods. Once it had served its practical purpose, it was disbanded and the matter was over. Even though it was unique in being convened and presided over by a Roman emperor, and in aiming to be universal in the sense of including bishops from the whole Christian realm, it was not quite intending to create a once-and-for-all summary of Christian teaching. If that had been their aim, it would have been harder to bring in the new, unclear, and controversial term, homoousion, same essence or same substance, to describe how God and His Son are metaphysically related to one another. Although often papered over with abstract language, there is still disagreement over the meaning of that term. Still, most now can't imagine throwing out the venerable Nicene Creed. But things were different back then. As we saw in episodes 113, 114, and 115, several large meetings of Catholic bishops got together with the purpose of replacing the Nicene language with something acceptable to a wider group. In those episodes, I presented the Council at Antioch in 341, the Recycled Creed, which was used from 342 to 359 by various groups, and the Aborted Council at Certica in 343. In short, the matter was still unsolved. It appeared that while the 325 Council's Creed was a short-term success, in that it threw out the disliked Arius and his few supporters, long-term it was causing all kinds of discord. By the way, the 325 Council is not the origin of Trinitarian theology, that is, of belief in a tripersonal God. That came later. Nor did they express quite the same view that was eventually mandated in 381. If you don't understand how recent scholarship has much clarified what was and what was not done at Nicaea in 325, you might want to stop here and listen to podcast episodes 29, 30, and 31. In any case, this episode picks up the story where the person who traditional accounts make the hero of the story enters the frame. Dr. Khaled Anatolios of Notre Dame University summarizes what we know of Athanasius' earlier life in his book Retrieving Nicaea as follows. Athanasius was born in Egypt around 295. A 10th century Arabic chronicle of Coptic patriarchs reports that he was born to pagan parents and that his widowed mother converted to Christianity at his instigation when he was a teenager. It also reports that he was taken into the household of Bishop Alexander at an early age and tutored in scripture and theology. The reliability of all the details of this hagiographical account is uncertain, but we do know that the young Athanasius, barely 30 years old at most, was present at the Council of Nicaea as Alexander's secretary. With the death of Alexander three years after Nicaea in 328, Athanasius became Bishop of Alexandria. He inherited a church embroiled in the doctrinal disagreements between Alexander and Arius, and still suffering from the disturbances of the Miletian Schism. 
to summarize, there was a long-standing local dispute. There were people called the Miletians who had had a disagreement with an earlier bishop of Alexandria. And even though the Council of Nicaea had supposedly resolved this dispute, Athanasius was heavy-handed in his attempts to make it go away. Anatolios says, Athanasius's popularity among his own people grew with his tenure as bishop and was further consolidated by his integration of the growing monastic community of Egypt with his own episcopal authority and doctrinal stance. However, outside of Egypt, disapproval of his resolute opposition to Arius and his supporters, together with the ill repute garnered by his opponents' accusations, resulted in his legendary series of exiles, constituting 17 of his 46 years as Bishop of Alexandria. That's all quite correct. However, he's leaving out quite a lot of unflattering information. It's well known from multiple ancient sources that Athanasius could be a real thug. Leading historian R.P.C. Hansen summarizes some of these ancient charges as follows. Causing divisions and disturbances in his diocese, preventing people entering churches, murders and imprisonments, and undeserved beatings and woundings. Hansen continues, We find Athanasius behaving like an employer of thugs hired to intimidate his enemies. The evidence of Papyrus 1914, Bell remarks, makes it certain that the charges of violent and unscrupulous behavior in his see made against Athanasius at Caesarea in 334, at Tyre in 335, at Sertica in 343, and many times thereafter were not baseless. Eventually, a council was called to assemble at Caesarea in Palestine with the sole purpose of putting Athanasius on trial for his behavior. It's not clear if this meeting actually occurred, but Athanasius refused to show up, and he never mentions it thereafter. But the complaints about his behavior were numerous and loud, and they wouldn't go away. And so another meeting was convened at Tyre in 335, basically an ecclesial trial of Athanasius. This time, compelled by the emperor, Athanasius showed up. Hansen says, Athanasius had arrived, July 11th, accompanied by 30 Egyptian bishops who were his supporters, and who behaved during the session of the council in a disturbing and threatening manner. His encouragement over several years to his supporters to behave like hooligans was now recoiling on his own head. He defended himself with spirit. I'll bet he did. But evidently it wasn't a very compelling defense. It soon became clear that Athanasius was going to lose, and so he secretly fled the city and headed towards Constantinople, evidently to appeal personally to the emperor. Again, Hansen. The Council of Tyre condemned Athanasius on a number of charges, deposed him from being Archbishop of Alexandria, excommunicated him, and forbade him to return to his former see. Precisely what the charges upon which he was condemned is not altogether clear, but they probably comprised these. 1. His refusal to appear at the Council of Caesarea. 2. The contumacious behavior of himself and his followers during the Council of Tyre. 3. The affair of Ishiras and the broken chalice which was assumed to have been proved against him. His flight in the middle of the Council was taken as an admission of guilt. They reinstated some deposed Miletian bishops and sent a circular letter to all bishops asking them not to communicate with Athanasius. What is this third charge that Hansen's referring to? Earlier, Hansen summarizes charges made by this group of clerics in Alexandria that had been the object of his wrath. Back in the summer of 332, they had alleged, in Hansen's words, 
that one of his agents, Macarius, had with his approval visited a presbyter in the Mariotis called Ishiras, and had used violence to him, breaking an altar and perhaps a bishop's chair and smashing a sacred chalice and maltreating Ishiras personally, and that Athanasius had either murdered a bishop called Arsenius or, an equally serious charge, practiced sorcery by using the severed hand of his corpse. The former charge is now impossible to examine in detail, so contradictory was the evidence given, so dense the cloud of prejudice on each side. No doubt the Eusebians who accused Athanasius were as blindly prejudiced as Athanasius himself when he wrote in his defense. Athanasius never actually denies that Ischyrus was assaulted. He confines his defense to pointing out that Ischyrus was not in a strict sense a presbyter at all. In short, his opponents cried, Violence and sacrilege, and Athanasius replies, No, only violence. So as Hansen points out, there surely was some slander mixed up with what seemed to be, all things considered, plausible charges. And that's why they condemned, deposed, and excommunicated Athanasius. Hansen describes the aftermath. This verdict was a crushing blow for Athanasius, one from which it took him a long time to recover and perhaps only he could have recovered from it. Nobody can pretend that the proceedings at Tyre were a model of just dealing. The difficulty facing the bishops gathered there was that they could only condemn on specific, not on general charges, and it was difficult to obtain evidence on specific charges. But they had given Athanasius an opportunity to defend himself. The behavior of his supporters during the trial was menacing and exasperating, and suggested that he was more concerned with coercion than with justice. It must have been clear to everybody that he had been for some time using indefensible violence in the administration of his see, even though it was not easy to bring him to book on exact charges. During the course of his many self-exculpations, Athanasius makes a careful choice of what accusations he mentions. He completely ignores the serious and well-attested evidence of his own continual use of violence. He represents the Council of Tyre, which was a properly constituted and entirely respectable gathering of churchmen, some of whom had been confessors in the Great Persecution, as a gang of disreputable conspirators, and brands all his opponents as favorers of heresy. When we have said all that can be said in criticism of the Council of Tyre, we must acknowledge that there was an air of nemesis about it. And what Hansen means there by an air of nemesis is that it seems to him like there was retributive justice involved. In other words, that Athanasius is getting what he deserved. As to the excommunication and deposition handed out by this council, I guess the clergy in Alexandria, Egypt, just never accepted those. And so, although he spent a long time running, he continued to be the bishop of this major Roman city. In the rest of this episode, we'll hear about the point where this battling bishop of Alexandria enters the theological fight. Scholars date this work to the 350s and usually to the early 350s. This is the first extant work in which Athanasius defends the key term of the 325 Creed. And scholars like Francis Young believe he took a long time in coming to the view that that term was all important. Remember, this is more than a quarter century after the 325 meeting. Our author is writing to someone who, like Athanasius, is on the Nicene side. He wants to defend that language. And the person he's writing to has been arguing against, quote, Eusebians, that is, people influenced by the theology of the famous bishop Eusebius of Caesarea, whose years are about 260 to 340. 
These, of course, Athanasius smears as Arians, wanting to tar them all with the name of the condemned presbyter as if they were his disciples. And as Anatolios has observed, lumping them all together also enables Athanasius to ridicule them as inconsistent. We should ask, though, why would those who have not bought into the new language of 325 have to have one exact position on all matters? In any case, the Christians in question apparently had objected that the council used unscriptural language. This, of course, is an indisputable fact, so a main purpose of Athanasius here is to show why this new language was justified. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the first three chapters of Athanasius's short work on the Nicene Council, also called Defense of the Nicene Definition, and it's often referred to by its Latin title, De Decretis. You have done well in signifying to me the discussion you have had with the advocates of Arianism, among whom were certain of the friends of Eusebius, as well as very many of the brothers who hold the doctrine of the church. I hailed your vigilance for the love of Christ, which excellently exposed the irreligion of their heresy, while I marveled at the effrontery which led the Arians, after all the past detection of unsoundness and futility in their arguments, even after the general conviction of their extreme perverseness, still to complain like the Jews, why did the fathers at Nicaea use terms not in Scripture, of the essence, and one in essence? You then, as a man of learning, in spite of their trickery, did convict them of talking to no purpose, and they, in devising them, were but acting suitably to their own evil disposition. For they are as variable and fickle in their sentiments as chameleons in their colors." And when exposed, they look confused, and when questioned, they hesitate, and then they lose shame and flee away to evasions. Now, such endeavors are nothing else than an obvious token of their defect of reason, and a copying, as I have said, of Jewish wickedness. For the Jews, too, when convicted by the truth and unable to confront it, used evasions such as, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? In truth, dead men were raised, lame walked, blind saw fresh, lepers were cleansed, and the water became wine, and five loaves satisfied five thousand, and all wondered and worshipped the Lord, confessing that in him were fulfilled the prophecies, and that he was God, the Son of God. All but the Pharisees, who, though the signs shone brighter than the sun, still complained as ignorant men, Why do you, a man, make yourself God? insensate, truly blind in understanding, they ought instead to have said, Why have you, being God, become man? For his works proved him God. They might both worship the goodness of the Father and admire the Son's economy for our sakes. However, this they did not say, nor like to witness what he was doing, or they witnessed indeed, for this they could not help, but they changed their ground to complaint again. Why did you heal the paralytic? Why did you make the man born blind to see on the Sabbath? This too was an excuse and mere murmuring, for on other days as well did the Lord heal. And though in many times and ways the Savior showed his deity and preached the Father to all men, nevertheless as kicking against the goads, they contradicted in the language of folly, and this they did according to the divine proverb, 
that by finding occasions they might separate themselves from the truth. As then the Jews of that day, for acting thus wickedly and denying the Lord, were with justice deprived of their laws and of the promise made to their fathers, so the Arians, Judaizing now, are, in my judgment, in circumstances like those of Caiaphas and the contemporary Pharisees. For perceiving that their heresy is utterly unreasonable, they invent excuses. Why was this defined and not that? Denying the word of God, reason they have none at all, as is fair. Where then of this, I would have made no reply to their interrogations. Since your friendliness is asked to know the transaction of the council, I have without any delay related at once what then took place, showing in few words how destitute Arianism is of a religious spirit, and how their one business is to frame evasions. And you, beloved, consider whether or not it's so. If the devil, having sowed their hearts with this perverseness, they feel confidence in their bad inventions, let them defend themselves against the proofs of heresy which have been advanced, and then will be the time to find fault, if they can, with the definition framed against them. For no one on being convicted of murder or adultery is at liberty after the trial to arraign the sentence of the judge why he spoke in this way and not in that. This doesn't exonerate the convict, but rather increases his crime on the score of petulance and audacity. In like manner, let these either prove that their sentiments are religious, for they were then accused and convicted, and their complaints are subsequent, and it is just that those who are under a charge should confine themselves to their own defense. Or if they have an unclean conscience and are aware of their own irreligion, let them not complain of what they do not understand, or they will bring on themselves a double imputation of irreligion and ignorance. Rather, let them investigate the matter in a docile spirit, and learning what hitherto they have not known, cleanse their irreligious ears with the spring of truth and the doctrines of religion. Now, it happened to Eusebius and his fellows in the Nicene Council as follows. While they stood out in their irreligion and attempted their fight against God, the terms they used were replete with irreligion, but the assembled bishops, who were three hundred more or less, mildly and charitably required of them to explain and defend themselves on religious grounds. Scarcely, however, did they begin to speak when they were condemned, and one differed from another. Then perceiving the straits in which their heresy lay, they remained silent, and by their silence confessed the disgrace which had come upon their heterodoxy. On this, the bishops, having negated the terms they had invented, published against them the sound and ecclesiastical faith. And, as all subscribed to it, Eusebius and his fellows subscribed also in those very words of which they are now complaining, I mean, of the essence and one in essence, and that the Son of God is neither creature nor work, nor in the number of things originated, but that the Word is an offspring from the substance of the Father." Are they not then committing a crime in their very thought to gainsay so great an ecumenical a council? Are they not in transgression when they dare to confront that good definition against Arianism, acknowledged as it is by those who had in the first instance taught them irreligion, and supposing even after subscription Eusebius and his fellows did change again and return like dogs to their own vomit of irreligion, do not the present gainsayers deserve still greater detestation because they thus sacrifice their soul's liberty to others and are willing to take these persons as masters of their heresy, who, as James has said, are double-minded men and unstable in all their ways, not having one opinion but changing to and fro and now recommending certain statements but soon dishonoring them and in turn recommending what just now they were blaming. But this 
as the shepherd has said, is the child of the devil, and the note of hucksters rather than of doctors. For what our fathers have delivered, this is truly doctrine. And this is truly the token of doctors, to confess the same thing with each other, and to vary neither from themselves nor from their fathers. Whereas they who do not have this character are to be called not true doctors, but evil. Thus the Greeks, as not witnessing to the same doctrines, but quarreling with one another, have no truth of teaching. But the holy and truthful heralds of the truth agree together and do not differ. For though they lived in different times, yet they one and all tend the same way, being prophets of one God and preaching the same word harmoniously. And thus what Moses taught, that Abraham observed. And what Abraham observed, that Noah and Enoch acknowledged, discriminating pure from impure and becoming acceptable to God. Thus to the Apostle Paul, If anyone preach any other gospel to you than that which you have received, let him be anathema. As I have said, so I say again, if even we or an angel from heaven should preach to you any other gospel than you have received, let him be anathema. Since then the apostle thus speaks, let these men either anathematize Eusebius and his fellows, or at least as changing round and professing what is contrary to their subscriptions, or if they acknowledge that their subscriptions were good, let them not utter complaints against so great a council. But if they do neither one nor the other, they are themselves too plainly the sport of every wind and surge, and are influenced by opinions not their own but of others, and being such, are as little worthy of deference now as before in what they allege. Let them cease to carp at what they understand not, lest they call evil good and good evil, and think that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Doubtless they desire the doctrines which have been judged wrong and have been reprobated should gain the ascendancy, and they make violent efforts to prejudice what was rightly defined. Nor should there be any reason on our part for any further explanation or answer to their excuses, neither on theirs for further resistance, but for an acquiescence in what the leaders of their heresy subscribed. For though the subsequent change of Eusebius and his fellows was suspicious and immoral, their subscription, when they had the opportunity of at least some little defense of themselves, is a proof of the irreligion of their doctrine. For they would not have subscribed previously had they not condemned the heresy, nor would they have condemned it had they not been encompassed with difficulty and shame, so that to change back again is proof of their contentious zeal for irreligion. These men also ought, therefore, as I have said, to keep quiet. But since from an extraordinary lack of modesty they hope perhaps to be able to advocate this diabolical irreligion better than the others, therefore, though in my former letter written to you I have already argued at length against them, notwithstanding, come let us now also examine them in each of their separate statements as their predecessors. For now, not less than then, their heresy shall be shown to have no soundness in it, but to be from evil spirits." They say then what the others held and dared to maintain before them. Not always father, not always son, for the son was not before his generation, but as others came to be from nothing, and in consequence God was not always father of the son, but when the son came to be and was created, then was God called his father, for the word is a creature and a work, and foreign and unlike the father in essence, and the son is neither by nature the father's true word, nor his only and true wisdom, but being a creature and one of the works, he is improperly called word and wisdom, for by the word which is in God he was made, as were all things, wherefore the Son is not true God. Now it may serve to make them understand what they are saying, to ask them first this, what in fact a Son is, and what does that name mean? 
In truth, divine scripture shows us a double sense of this word, one which Moses sets before us in the law, when you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments which I command you this day, to do that which is right in the eyes of the Lord your God, you are children of the Lord your God. As also in the gospel, John says, But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become sons of God. And the other sense, that in which Isaac is the son of Abraham, and Jacob of Isaac, and the patriarchs of Jacob. Now, in which of these two senses did they understand the Son of God, that they relate such fables as what went before? For I feel sure they will issue in the same irreligion with Eusebius and his fellows. If in the first sense, which belongs to those who gain the name by grace for moral improvement and receive power to become sons of God, for this is what their predecessors said, then he would seem to differ from us in nothing No, nor would he be only begotten as having obtained the title son as others from his virtue. For granting what they say, that whereas his qualifications were foreknown, he therefore received grace from the first, the name and the glory of the name, from his very beginning, still there will be no difference between him and those who receive the name after their actions, so long as this is the ground on which he, as others, has the title of son." For Adam, too, though he received grace from the first, and upon his creation was at once placed in paradise, differed in no respect either from Enoch, who was translated to there after some time from his birth on his pleasing God, or from the apostle who likewise was caught up to paradise after his actions. No, not from him who once was a thief, on the ground of his confession, received a promise that he should shortly be in paradise. When thus pressed, they will perhaps make an answer, which has brought them into trouble many times already, We consider that the Son has this prerogative over others and therefore is called only begotten because He alone was brought to be by God alone and all other things were created by God through the Son. Now I wonder who it was that suggested to you so futile and novel an idea as that the Father alone wrought with His own hand the Son alone and that all other things were brought to be by the Son as an underworker. If for the toils, say, God was content with making the sun only instead of making all things at once, this is an irreligious thought, especially in those who know the words of Isaiah. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, hungers not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. Rather, it is he who gives strength to the hungry and through his word refreshes the laboring. Again, it is irreligious to suppose that he disdained as if a humble task to form creatures himself, which came after the sun. For there is no pride in that God who goes down with Jacob into Egypt, and for Abraham's sake corrects Abimelech for sake of Sarah, and speaks face to face with Moses, himself a man, and descends upon Mount Sinai, and by his secret grace fights for the people against Amalek. However, you are false even in this assertion, for he made us and not we ourselves. He, it is, who through his word made all things small and great. We may not divide the creation and say, this is the Father's and this the Son's. But they are of one God who uses his proper word as a hand, and in him does all things. This God himself shows us when he says, all these things my hand have made. In Isaiah 66, 2. Well, Paul taught us as he had learned that there is one God from whom are all things and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things. 
1 Corinthians 8, 6. Thus he always as now speaks to the sun and it rises and commands the clouds and it rains upon one place and where it does not rain it is dried up and he bids the earth yield her fruits and fashions Jeremiah in the womb. But if he now does all this, assuredly at the beginning also he did not disdain to make all things himself through the word, for these are but parts of the whole. But let us not suppose that the other creatures could not endure to be made by the absolute hand of the unoriginate, and therefore the Son alone was brought into being by the Father alone, and other things by the Son as an underworker and assistant. For this is what Asterius the sacrificer has written, and Arius has transcribed and bequeathed to his own friends, and from that time they use this form of words, broken reed as it is, being ignorant, the bewildered men, how brittle it is. For if it is impossible for things originate to bear the hand of God, and you hold the Son to be one of their number, how was he too equal to this formation by God alone? And if a mediator became necessary that things originate might come to be, and you hold the Son to be originated, then must there have been some medium before him for his creation. And that mediator himself again being a creature, it follows that he too needed another mediator for his own constitution, And though we were to devise another, we must first devise his mediator, so that we shall never come to an end. And thus, a mediator being ever in request, never will the creation be constituted, because nothing originate, as you say, can bear the absolute hand of the unoriginate. And if, on your perceiving the extravagance of this, you begin to say that the Son, though a creature, was capable of being made by the unoriginate, Then it follows that other things also, though originated, are capable of being made immediately by the unoriginate. For the Son, too, is but a creature in your judgment, as all of them. And accordingly, the origination of the word is superfluous. According to your irreligious and futile imagination, God being sufficient for the immediate formation of all things, and all things originate being capable of sustaining his absolute hand. These irreligious men, having so little mind among their madness, let's see if this particular sophism is more rational than the others. Adam was created alone by God through the word, yet no one would say that Adam had any prerogative over other men or was different from those who came after him, granting that he alone was made and fashioned by God alone, and we all spring from Adam and consist according to the succession of the race so long as he was fashioned from the earth as others, and at first not being, afterwards came to be. But though we were to allow some prerogative to the protoplast as having been deemed worthy of the hand of God, still it must be one of honor, not of nature, for he came of the earth as other men, and the hand which then fashioned Adam is also now in ever fashioning and giving entire consistence to those who come after him. And God himself declares this to Jeremiah, as I said before, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And so he says of all, All those things have my hand made. 
And again by Isaiah, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads out the earth by myself. And David, knowing this, says in the psalm, Your hands have made me and fashioned me. And he who says in Isaiah, Thus says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, signifies the same. Therefore, in respect of nature, he differs nothing from us, though he precedes us in time, so long as we all consist and are created by the same hand. If then these be your thoughts, O Arians, about the Son of God too, that he subsists and came to be, then in your judgment he will differ nothing on the score of nature from others, so long as he too was not and came to be, and the name was by grace united to him in his creation for his virtue's sake. For he himself is one of those, from what you say, of whom the Spirit says in the Psalms, he spoke the word and they were made, he commanded and they were created. If so, who was it by whom God gave a command for the Son's creation? For a word there must be by whom God gave command, and in whom the works are created. But you have no other to show than the word you deny, unless indeed you should devise again some new notion. Yes, they will say, we have another which indeed I formerly heard Eusebius and his fellows use. On this score do we consider that the Son of God has a prerogative over others and is called only begotten because he alone partakes of the Father and all other things partake the Son. Lest they weary themselves in changing and varying their phrases like colors. However, this shall not save them from an exposure as men that are of the earth speaking vainly and wallowing in their own conceits as in mire. For if he were called God's son, and we the son's sons, their fiction were plausible. But if we too are said to be sons of that God, of whom he is son, then we too partake the Father, who says, I have begotten and exalted children. For if we did not partake of him, he would not have said, I have begotten. But if he himself begat us, no other than he is our Father. And, as before, it matters not whether the Son has something more and was made first, but we something less and were made afterwards, as long as we all partake and are called sons of the same Father. For the more or less does not indicate a different nature, but attaches to each according to the practice of virtue. And one is placed over ten cities, another over five, and some sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and others hear the words, Come, you blessed of my father, and well done, good and faithful servant. With such ideas, however, no wonder they imagine that of such a son God was not always father, and such a son was not always in being, but was generated from nothing as a creature, and was not before his generation. For such a one is other than the true son of God. But to persist in such teaching does not consist with piety, for it is rather the tone of thought of Sadducees and Paul of Samosata. It remains then to say that the Son of God is so called according to the other sense in which Isaac was the son of Abraham. For what is naturally begotten from anyone and does not accrue to him from without, that in the nature of things is a son, and that is what the name implies. Is the son's generation one of human affection? For perhaps as their predecessors, they too will be ready to object in their ignorance. In no way. For God is not as man, nor men as God. Men were created of matter, and that passable. But God is immaterial and incorporeal. If the same terms are used of God and man in divine scripture, 
Yet the clear-sighted, as Paul enjoins, will study it and thereby discriminate and dispose of what is written according to the nature and understand what is written according to the nature of each subject and avoid any confusion of sense so as neither to conceive of the things of God in a human way nor to ascribe the things of man to God. For this were to mix wine with water and to place upon the altar strange fire with that which is divine. For God creates, and to create is also ascribed to men. And God has been, and men are said to be, having received from God this gift also. Yet does God create as men do, or is his being as man's being? Perish the thought. We understand the terms in one sense of God and in another of men. For God creates in that he calls what is not into being, needing nothing for this. But men work some existing material, first praying and so gaining the intelligence to make from that God who has framed all things by his proper word. And again, men, being incapable of self-existence, are enclosed in place and consist in the word of God. But God is self-existent, enclosing all things and enclosed by none, within all according to his own goodness and power, yet without all in his proper nature. As then men create not as God creates, as their being is not such as God's being, so too men's generation is in one way, and the Son is from the Father in another. For the offspring of men are portions of their fathers, since the very nature of bodies is not uncompounded, but in a state of flux and composed of parts, and men lose their substance in begetting. And again they gain substance from ingesting food. And on this account, men in their time become fathers of many children, but God, being without parts, is father of the Son without partition or passion. For there is neither effluence of the immaterial nor influx from without, as among men. And being uncompounded in nature, he is father of one only Son. This is why he is called only begotten, and alone in the Father's bosom, and alone is acknowledged by the Father to be from him, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he too is the Father's word, from which may be understood the impassable and impartative nature of the Father, in that not even a human word is begotten with passion or partition, much less the word of God. Wherefore also he sits as word at the Father's right hand, for where the Father is, there also is his word. But we, as his works, stand in judgment before him, and while he is adored, because he is son of the adorable Father, we adore, confessing him Lord and God, because we are creatures and other than he. case being thus, let who will among them consider the matter, so that one may abash them by the following question. Is it right to say that what is God's offspring and proper to him is out of nothing? Or is it reasonable in the very idea that what is from God has accrued to him, that a man should dare to say that the Son is not 
always. For in this again, the generation of the Son exceeds and transcends the thoughts of men, that we become fathers of our own children in time, since we ourselves first were not, and then came into being. But God, in that he ever is, is ever Father of the Son. And the origination of mankind is brought home to us from things that are parallel. But since no one knows the Son but the Father, and no one knows the Father but the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him, Therefore the sacred writers to whom the Son has revealed him have given us a certain image from things visible, saying, Who is the brightness of his glory and the expression of his person? And again, For with you is the well of life, and in your light shall we see light. And when the word chides Israel, he says, You have forsaken the fountain of wisdom. And this fountain it is which says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And mean indeed, and very dim is the illustration compared with what we are describing. But yet it is possible from it to understand something above man's nature, instead of thinking the sun's generation to be on a level with ours. For who can imagine that the radiance of light ever was not, so that he should dare to say that the sun was not always, or that the sun was not before his generation, or who is capable of separating the radiance from the sun, or to conceive of the fountain as ever void of life, that he should madly say, the sun is from nothing, who says, I am life, or alien to the Father's essence, who says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. For the sacred writers wishing us to understand in this way have given these illustrations, and it is unseemly and most irreligious when Scripture contains such images to form ideas concerning our Lord from others which are neither in Scripture nor have any religious bearing. Therefore let them tell us from what teacher or by what tradition they derive these notions concerning the Savior. We have read, they will say, in the Proverbs the Lord created me a beginning of his ways unto his works. This Eusebius and his fellows used to insist on, and you write me word that the present men also, though overthrown and confuted by an abundance of arguments, are still saying that the Son was one of the creatures and reckoning him with things originated. They seem to me to have a wrong understanding of this passage also, for it has a religious and very orthodox sense, which had they understood they would have not blasphemed the Lord of glory. For on comparing what has been above stated with this passage, they will find a great difference between them, for what man of right understanding does not perceive that what are created and made are external to the Maker, but the Son, as the foregoing argument has shown, exists not externally, but from the Father who begat him? For man, too, both builds a house and begets a son, and no one would reverse things and say that the house or the ship were begotten by the builder, but the son is created and made by him, nor again that the house was an image of the maker, but the son unlike him who begat him. But rather he will confess that the son is an image of the father, but the house a work of art, unless his mind be distorted and he's beside himself." plainly divine scripture, which knows better than any the nature of everything, says through Moses of the creatures, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. But of the Son it introduces not another but the Father himself, saying, I have begotten thee from the womb before the morning star. And the Lord says of himself in the Proverbs, Before all the hills he begets me. 
and concerning things originated and created, John speaks, all things were made by him. But preaching of the Lord, he says, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he declared him. If then Son, therefore not creature. If creature, not Son. For great is the difference between them, and Son and creature cannot be the same unless his essence be considered to be at once from God and external to God. Does the passage have no meaning? This, like a swarm of gnats, they are droning around us. No, surely it is not without meaning, but has a very appropriate one. For it is true to say that the Son was created too, but this took place when he became man. For creation belongs to man, and any one may find this sense duly given in the divine oracles, who, instead of accounting their study as secondary matter, investigates the time and the characters and the object, and thus studies and ponders what he reads. Now as to the season spoken of, he will find for certain that, whereas the Lord always is, at length in fullness of the ages he became man, and whereas he is Son of God, he became Son of Man also. And as to the object, he will understand that, wishing to annul our death, he took on himself a body from the Virgin Mary, that by offering this to the Father a sacrifice for all, he might deliver us, who by fear of death were all our life through subject to bondage. And as to the character, it is indeed the Savior's, but is said of him when he took a body, and said, the Lord created me a beginning of his ways unto his works. For as is properly belongs to God's Son to be everlasting and in the Father's bosom, so on his becoming man, the words, the Lord created me, fit him. For then it is said of him, as also that he hungered and thirsted and asked where Lazarus lay and suffered and rose again. And as when we hear of him as Lord and God and true light, we understand him as being from the Father. So on hearing the Lord created and servant and he suffered, we shall justly ascribe these not to the deity, for it is irrelevant, but we must interpret it by that flesh which he bore for our sakes. For to it these things are proper, and this flesh was none other than the words." And if we wish to know the object attained by this, we shall find it to be as follows, that the Word was made flesh in order to offer up this body for all, and that we, partaking of his Spirit, might be deified, a gift which we could not otherwise have gained than by his clothing himself in our created body, since from this we derive our name of men of God and men Christ. But as we, by receiving the Spirit, do not lose our own proper substance, so the Lord, when made man for us, and bearing a body, was no less God. For he was not lessened by the envelopment of the body, but rather deified it and rendered it immortal. This then is quite enough to expose the infamy of the Arian heresy. For as the Lord has granted out of their own words is irreligion brought home to them. This week's thinking music has been the track Cityscape Backdrop by Jesse Spillane. 
Next week, more from Athanasius. More of his refutation of these mainstream Christians who, more than a quarter century after the Council at Nicaea, still have problems with its language. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share the podcast on social media. Another thing you can do is give us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can support the podcast by giving us a one-time or a monthly donation through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons on the right side of any blog post. Lastly, make your voice heard. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our very active Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. Don't forget then to share, to rate, to chip in when you can, and to talk back. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.